damages, but because it is a very high-profile case, Minion case. and it is a case involving a media defendant, where there, to your point, Karen, are a lot of protections there, even though I have strong degrees of confidence here that Dominion's gone well past to defeat any of those immunities and protections, the safest thing for a judge to do in a situation like this, not what I would do as a judge, but that's why no one's making Ben myself as the judge anytime soon, but the safest thing for a judge to probably do here is say, you know what, instead of getting reversed or overturned, there's a lot of factual issues here. Let's have a jury trial in April. Let the jury hear it. Maybe the case settles before it goes to a jury. I personally hope it doesn't settle so that I want to see Tucker and Ingraham and Hannity and Murdoch's and Suzanne Scott and all of these people. I want to see them on the stand, um, but we will, um, you know, so I hope they don't settle. But I think this case ultimately goes to trial for that reason, even though I think that summary judgment in my favor could potentially by an aggressive judge be granted for Dominion, given that they've just, they've laid out all the facts and you got all this deposition transcripts that's just so damning where the Fox people, they have to admit it because they wrote in text messages and emails contemporaneously. We see their messages. I guess they were so arrogant. They never thought it would see the light of day, but you know, that's, uh, that's why you have civil discovery and Dominion's lawyers have done just an incredible, incredible job here. And finally, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I think it's helpful just to update our listeners and viewers about a important case that's gone before the Supreme Court, Biden versus Nebraska. And it's got another associated case filed by individuals in Texas. But in these case, in these cases, it's the culmination of lawsuits filed by Republican proxy groups and states across the country to stop Biden's student debt cancellation program. The Department of Education under Biden utilized what's called the HEROES Act. It's an act passed in 2003, uh, which provides certain powers to the Secretary of Education to do things like modify uh, student uh, loans. And the HEROES Act, while it has a strong military component to it, also has language in there that specifically refers to or other national emergencies. So even the Trump administration invoked the HEROES Act when it engaged in forbearance on debt collection. We're still in that forbearance period right now, which is set to expire in late June or July. It keeps getting uh, extended. But um, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then ultimately a district court in Texas, a Trump-appointed judge, then ultimately the Fifth Circuit rulings, combined effect was to block the student debt cancellation program from taking effect. The Biden administration appealed to the Supreme Court. They got basically a fast-track writ of certiorari, so it could be heard as a normal oral argument. Oral argument was held this week. The court, uh, the, the, the right-wingers on the court who outnumber uh, the other judges six to three seem like they're looking for a way to strike down uh, the, the student debt cancellation program. So I don't have a great degree of confidence that the student debt cancellation program will ultimately uh, come into effect based on the oral arguments uh, that I held. Uh, 
the one thing that has the barrier that the uh, individuals who have sued the Biden administration first have to overcome is that they have standing and the states argued somehow their tax, they're going to be able to collect less taxes. Essentially, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically their argument that they're not going to be able to collect the same amount of revenue because of student debt cancellation. And then you had these individuals who sued one who would only get $10,000 in relief instead of $20,000 in relief and another student who had commercial loans who wouldn't get any relief under the student debt cancellation. And they argued because we're not getting the benefits, therefore that's an injury. You know, and to that I say, if that's an injury, then every time the banks get bailed out and Wall Street gets bailed out and corporations get bailed out, that's an injury to me. I should get, everyone should get $8 billion, I suppose, if we're going to be bailing out, you know, certain industries. And the bottom line is that, look, you may disagree with Biden's policies, but here's the thing. There are, uh, first off, it's surgically done. It's generally impacts lower income Americans significantly, and it's capped at $10,000 in student debt cancellation, which often is basically the interest when you think about it for a lot of these student debt loans, not even the principal. So you're talking about cancellation of $10,000 and $20,000 on uh, Pell Grants um, versus you know, in other administrations, we've seen student debt cancellation, that's student debt cancellation, we've seen debt cancellation or other types of bailouts of industries and bankruptcy to the tunes of billions of dollars per entity or per corporation. And so to me, you know, it's, it's hard to say, well, this group can get it, like, like the Supreme Court will say, it's okay when billionaires get it, but when you do a targeted program that seeks to help lower-income Americans and middle-class Americans in this targeted way, uh-uh, that's unconstitutional, but the other ones are fine. Um, and so that, to me, is whether you support it or whether you don't support it, it seems that the Supreme Court and all of these courts, which are heavily influenced by Republican-appointed judges, are just applying a different standard. Personally, if you want to know my views, I support the student debt cancellation program, but my politics aside... You know, if you think about PPP and other bailouts, you have the same Republicans who are getting their debt extinguished now saying it's not fair for $10,000 in debt to get extinguished from students. And I'll make one more point, and I'm sorry for hogging this topic, but I do feel a bit passionate about it. It is actually helpful for the economy. It's a net plus for the economy because there's so many people who are, even if you had to pay your student loans and you think that, hey, this is, this is unfair, um, and, and, and you feel that strongly, I would just have you reflect for a moment that there are so many people being strangled in this economy who can't buy houses, who have horrible credit, who can't engage in um, you know, paying their bills, and that this money would actually be injected into the economy and would actually be a net plus for you is what economists say. So that's my overall perspective on it. I don't want to harp too much on it, but I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, there's there's the legal perspective on this, right? This is a true separation of powers question. You know, the, the Congress is is who passes laws and passes laws to give out money, and you know, the president it basically doesn't have the ability to do that unless Congress acts, and so that that's what this kind of and then the courts interpret the law, obviously. So, and that's what that's what the discussion boils down to from a legal perspective, putting aside your, you know, whether it's fair or not. And 
you know, that's what they were they were focusing on in the Supreme Court was two things. They were focusing on um, is this does this fall within what's called the major questions doctrine? And the major questions doctrine is basically a principle of statutory interpretation interpretation that says if Congress wants to give an administrative agency the power to make decisions of vast economic and political significance, it must do so clearly. So what they're saying is Biden doesn't have the right to do this because only Congress does. But what Biden saying, or the Solicitor General in the Supreme Court uh, said, was, no, the major questions doctrine doesn't apply here, because unlike other cases where the court has applied that doctrine, uh, here, the Department of Education is saying, we're not doing this as our, within our regulatory authority, right? We don't even need to have regulatory authority to do this. We're doing this through the HEROES Act, which Congress has already provided the mechanism and the ability to do this. In fact, Trump, as you said, caused the student loans. So, so this isn't a major questions doctrine. It's really a statutory interpretation question. And the statute in question in the HEROES Act says that uh, basically in, in, the, in the case of any emergency that the um, the, the, the education secretary has the ability to waive or modify this, right, the loans. So those are the two words that, that, were, that were debated in, uh, in depth in front of the Supreme Court. Is this a waiver or is this a modification? And, you know, Chief Justice Roberts said, no, this isn't a mere modification of, of student loans. This is half a trillion dollars and 43 million Americans. That, that doesn't fit within the normal definition of what modifying is. And, and Kavanaugh said that, uh, said that modify might not fit, but what about wave? You know, wave is an ex extremely broad word, you know, and Gorsuch said that, you know, so they went back and forth on, on kind of all of this, but you know, that, that's what this is going to boil down to. This is going to boil down to a political philosophical decision shoehorned through whether you're going to decide does it fit this definition or that definition or does this person have standing or that person have standing and so they're going to cloak it under the guise of the words weren't put in there but it's really going to be a political philosophical decision that's going to, I think, come down on party lines the way so many decisions before the Supreme Court have lately. It's, it's really a shame, but, that, but that's really what the case is. What do I think? I think um, absolutely it not only fits legally uh, within the, the letter of the law, but I think it's the fair and right thing to do. Couldn't agree more with you. you said. I think your analysis is spot on. And finally, I just want to leave with this piece of breaking news, obviously, that dropped slightly earlier today that I think it is important we cover, which is Kellyanne Conway has met with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as well in connection with their criminal investigation of Donald Trump. Of course, Kellyanne Conway is his one-time chief strategist and White House advisor. And she was seen meeting with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg earlier. She was walking into the District Attorney's office shortly before 2 p.m. 
on Wednesday and is the latest, of course, as we mentioned earlier in the show, of the string of witnesses to meet with the prosecutor in the last few months. And she was there during uh, the campaign. She was there during the White House. Um, and Dan Goldman, who I mentioned, also even named a new law that he introduced after her, which he calls the Kellyanne Conway law, which is to make it uh, a criminal offense that violations of the Hatch Act, which uh, Kellyanne Conway and the Trump administration uh, violated uh, repeatedly. We'll give you more updates and more, more about what took place in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And of course, we will get Michael Cohen's reaction to it tomorrow on the political beatdown. Karen. Let me let me tell you something about Kellyanne Conway really quick in the Manhattan DA's office. So I don't, not everyone knows this, but the Manhattan DA's or the DA's office, you don't have the power to force someone to come talk to you. And you have subpoena power, but your subpoena power is only through either the grand jury or at trial. And the way to get trial subpoena power is you have to have a pending case. So the only way they could get Kellyanne Conway to go to Manhattan DA's office would be that she voluntarily came and, and said she would go talk to them voluntarily, or she was given a grand jury subpoena. And if she was given a grand jury subpoena, that doesn't even entitle a prosecutor to question someone if they don't want to be questioned. They can insist on going into the grand jury and only giving their testimony to the grand jury. So I just want to point that out as a procedural uh, procedural point for people to just know that she's either there voluntarily or she was subpoenaed to the grand jury and may have testified. And an important one at that, Karen Friedman and Niffalo, always an honor to host this with you. I know that uh, Michael Popak is always disappointed when he can't do the Wednesday editions. I know how much he loves doing these midweeks with you. We all how fill much... in for each other. Exactly, exactly. And we want to thank all the Midas Mighty out there for all of your incredible support. We're marching to 1 million subscribers in the March, in the month of March in March, so please hit the subscribe button right now to help us get to 1 million subscribers. Also, make sure wherever you get your podcasts that you, audio podcasts, that you uh, subscribe on audio to Legal AF as well. Just search Legal AF and you get your audio podcasts. Also, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. There's a bunch of memberships there. Um, that you get exclusive content, but most importantly, it helps grow this independent media platform. Again, I want to thank everybody for watching this episode. Karen Friedman, Agnifilo, I have too much fun. Enjoy the rest of your conference in Miami. And a special shout out to the Midas Mighty.
Right. So we're going to pull up a little bit. Cut on the heads. Fuck off. Where is up? Mother's touch. Hey everyone, I wanted to share a quick heads up for this interview with Joe Walsh. It got a little heated and Joe dropped a few F-bombs like this one right here. Today is Joe Walsh, a former Republican congressman from Illinois and a 2020 Republican presidential candidate. He hosts the podcast White Flag with Joe Walsh and has been increasingly critical of the extremism within his former party. We brought him on today to talk about it. Joe, welcome to Burn the Buds. Chad, I mean it. It's good to be with you, man. Thanks. Uh, you, you, you bet. You said recently, and I'm going to quote here, <laughs> if you are a Republican or former Republican, the only thing that matters right now is you saying the following. If Donald Trump is the 2024 Republican nominee for president, I will not support him. How worried are you, Joe, about a repeat of the 2016 Republican primary when the party had a divided field and Trump was able to, to win the nomination? Um, I'm not a betting man, Ken, but if I were a betting man, Trump's going to be the 2024 nominee. Uh, and I don't even know how large the field is going to be. No, he ain't. It's going to be disqualified and in prison. I mean, I don't understand. Nikki Haley is is announcing. What the fuck? What's she going to do? What's Nikki Haley going to say? I love Donald Trump. I worship Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the greatest. Vote for me. This is the bind, Ken. All these Republicans are in. They fucking worshipped and enabled this man. And, 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 and how can they say they're better and they can't attack him? It's a real trap they're in. Well, it's cynicism, though, isn't it? They, did any of them, as far as you know, and you actually knew some of yeah. them, did any of them really worship Trump? Did any of them no. really buy into the bullshit, except for that that small fringe that is admittedly growing, but, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren, Lauren Boberts might be on the train but the ones we're talking about, the DeSantis's, the Nikki Haley's, 
uh, the Pompeos, they know better, right? They know better. Publicly worshipped and publicly bowed down to Trump. Um, in this in this era of Trump, there have always been three types of us: Republicans, former Republicans, um, those who are true believers. In Kenya, right, the Marjorie Taylors, a guy I served with, Jim Jordan, who used to be my fucking buddy. Uh, Jim Jordan's a true believer. Uh, everybody thinks it's just a fringe thing. There are more true believers. Uh, what? There are 222 Republicans in the House. I'll bet 70, 80, 90 of them are true believers. The vast majority of Republicans are not. Uh, they're cynical cowards who've kept their mouths shut to advance their own career. And then you have a few outliers like me, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, who publicly stood against him, and we have no future in the party. None. I want to pick apart those categories just a bit. Let's start with the true believers. My question is, true believers in in what in the cult of personality maybe i mean they're certainly not true believers in fiscal responsibility they're not true believers in uh american hegemony they're not true believers in a lot of the things that used to define the republican party what is it that those true believers you point to the jim jordans and the marjorie taylor greens what is it that they want uh trump slash trumpism slash authoritarianism, slash build a wall around America and keep everybody out. That's what they want. And look at, look at like me and Jordan. So, so 10 years ago, I'm in Congress, part of the Tea Party Caucus with Jordan. We're two of the leading voices. The Tea Party Caucus, as you know, Ken, became the Freedom Caucus. What did we believe in back then? Freedom. Free trade, free markets, limited government, you know, stuff that anybody can disagree with us on, but it was all issues-based. Um, Post-Trump, they don't believe in any of that anymore. And maybe kind of many of them never did. Um, but you're right. They, they believe in, they've become radicalized in that they believe in an authoritarian. Look at DeSantis. If, if not Trump, they want DeSantis, who uses government. Uh, to go after and punish people. That's what they believe in now. You have really defined your activism since coming out against Trump as opposition to to Trump. And while I, as a as a Democrat and a progressive, am welcoming to any ally that that this that this movement can attract, my concern is around the Trumpism versus. Trump dilemma. Uh, you just used the word Trumpism. I'm glad you did because my, my fear is that if Trump goes, he might be replaced by someone who is equally invested in Trumpism, but smarter about implementing it. So he, it, can it, so here's what happened. And I went after Mitt Romney last week because Mitt Romney kind of pisses me off a lot. Um, what created Trump? Uh, a Republican Party establishment that over the years ignored the base. What also created Trump? Tea Party people like me that inflamed that base. Um, both of us created Trump. So when Trump came along and he said, I'm going to build a fucking wall and keep black and brown people out, the base clung to him. People like me helped feed that. 
But people like in the establishment, they ignored these voters' concerns for years. The problem, Ken, is now this base is fully radicalized, fully radicalized. Like I say often, maybe you feel the same way, because I still hear from the, here's what's weird. I come from the base. I'm a reform gangbanger. I hear from these people every day. Um, they no longer believe in democracy. I've been screaming that now for two years. They no longer believe in democracy. I don't think a lot of Democrats and progressives really sufficiently understand that. You just called yourself a reformed gangbanger, yeah. and that threw me for a loop. Um, how important is accountability to you, Joe? Oh, I should have asked you at the beginning, do I need to watch my language? Can do I? Uh, I no. Okay. We'll, we'll bleep it out if we decide. We'll put the explicit okay. rating on it. Don't worry. Oh, hey, look, Ken, there, there's nothing more important than this. I mean, I have stood on the public stage for five to six years now. I've been naked. And I've had to almost every day on CNN or MSNBC or some platform publicly apologize for what I did to help bring us Trump. Why do I do that? Because I believe it. I believe I really did muck up and help create the conditions that led to Trump. I wish I hadn't inflamed the base so much back in the day. Um, it's really important to acknowledge that. Uh, because if I couldn't acknowledge that, Ken, then I couldn't do what I've done the last three to four or five years, which is try to do something about it and defeat my former party. Don't buy solar panels. Seriously. There no, you don't buy solar panels. Buying solar panels. Don't. <sighs> so, I'm going to ask you to apologize again. You've been doing that. No, do, do. <laughs> no, that's, this isn't the place for it. What I'd rather do is understand the psychology. Because if I, can un if I can get inside your head and understand what led you to say racist things about the president, then maybe we can better understand the people we're trying to, mm -hmm. on one hand, beat today. Yeah. Or if they're persuadable, persuade. Yeah. What is it about the conservative mindset circa 2022 and, you know, let's start with the election of Obama in 2008 that that excuses that kind of behavior from a former member of Congress. So I'd, what do do yeah, I'd, I'd love your take on this, uh, Ken, because I find this really interesting. Um, I was a proud and I still consider myself a proud Tea Party conservative based on what the Tea Party means to me. Now, looking back, there's no doubt that race was part of what the Tea Party was. Ken, I still don't believe it was the biggest part. I mean, I was a Tea Party guy because I was all pissed off about all the debt in the country, uh, how both parties were bankrupting future generations. That's what drove me into the Tea Party. Um... But I was a culture warrior, too. And I saw Obama, Ken, as my enemy. I saw John Boehner as my enemy, and I went after Boehner a lot, too. But I went after Obama a lot. And there were plenty of times, Ken, when the old Joe Walsh would go after Obama, 
where I'd get over my skis, and I, I would engage in ugly personal politics. Um, it was just me, generally, generally. What's the gangbanger? What you'd have to do, Ken, is you'd have to put some of the shit I said in front of me, and I'd respond to each one. But generally, most of the time, it was because I was so fired up about my cause that I'd lash out. Uh, and I did too much of that. Well, I'll put one thing in front of you for yeah. the hey, listeners who are confused by the lack of context. Uh, Obama is a Muslim. Happy New Year. That's Joe Walsh's Twitter feed. Uh, Obama never let a voter feel his birth certificate. Again, this is I'm not giving you room to apologize here. Um, I just want to, to so, understand the motivations behind that. Well, let me get the question out first because, you know, you said... Race wasn't the biggest part of the conservative agenda back then. But if it was the second biggest part, how the hell did it have so many adherents? It's a good question. Was it the second? Was it the third? Was it the fourth? It can, if racism was a significant a, part yeah. of the conservative agenda, why are so many people still drawn in? Oh, I have a theory. I'm going to let you take a shot at I'll, it. I'll give you, I'll, and I'll give you my theory, and, and I want to hear yours. Um, uh those two tweets, Obama is a Muslim, and I said that a few times. What's behind that? Did I believe Obama was a Muslim? No, uh, Ken, and I've apologized for that. Um, I am really, really, really still very pro-Israel. I believed in my bones back then that Obama was not sufficiently pro-Israel, and so I would lash out and say, oh, what the hell, he's a Muslim. Horrible thing to say. It, 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 what's interesting, can, go ahead. can we caveat that? Yeah. Because it's a lie. I, mean, I, I had Muslim interpreter in Afghanistan, one of the first oh, people no. I've ever met. So no, 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 and that's and Ken, thank you for saying that. And that's what I meant. A horrible thing to say because Obama is a professor, he's a Christian. So by saying that, when I said that, I'm, I'm like accusing Obama of lying. That's what I meant. So that's a horrible thing to say. Uh, in trying to explain it, Ken, it was just me getting over my skis because I was so pissed off on what Obama said about Israel. I was never a birther. There might, and never, never, never. There might have been a few stupid tweets like that, like we've never seen the birth certificate, just to be kind of cute, stupid, and funny to make some of my followers laugh. Get that. Now, to your more important question, Race is Step part of the mix. Bandwagon. Here's what I believe. Here's my theory. The base of the Republican Party from which I come is middle-aged and older and white. And they want 1950 for America back, and they want it back tomorrow. They want, Ken, you know it, they want the America back where men married women and women married men. And there were two genders, and you could say Merry Christmas and this was mostly a white Christian country, and we defended our borders, and that plant was in town. That plant that I worked at was in town. They want that world back. Part of that, Ken, is race. They want that primarily white Christian America back. This is still what I fascists. Them every day. I think we're going to agree on the fundamentals here and i would i would put it this way the animating principle of the republican party today is fear and the avatar for that can be the first black president it can be black matter it can be 
hungry and tired shoeless immigrants at the border, but the Republican Party has done an incredible job at stoking demonizing them that America is going to change too fast for my parents' can I, generation. Can I stop you? Can I stop you and yeah. continue? And I agree with you. Are you sick and tired of spam calls? Fucking well, Christo fascist. Absolutely. The basis of everything I just said, I want 1954 America back, is they're scared to death. Walsh, because... Uh, Walsh, come on, kitty, fuck off. Because... Christo fascist. Okay, I'm glad you're interviewing Walsh because he's being honest about the true Christo fascist right wing nuts who have taken over the Republican Party. Because their world has been changing in a nanosecond. And can not to defend them, but remember what 15, 16 years ago, Obama and Hillary opposed same-sex marriage. So the average voter sitting in the middle of my in Missouri, small town in Missouri, to them, their world is changing overnight. And they're scared to death. And Republicans and people like Tucker Carlson and Hannity feed those fears every day and i and used to saying, do some of that and there and you have i think cut through the bs on this as a former cog in that right-wing media ecosystem i'm going to read back a, a tweet that you put out pretty <laughs> recently uh, this needs to be said again this these are your words in the right-wing media world from which i come it pays really, really well to lie to your audience and to scare the hell out of them. It pays really well. Oh my God, Ken. You are incentivized because you know, look, and I knew this, uh, and Hannity knows this, and Mark Levin knows this. Limbaugh, fuck Limbaugh. He was the worst. He knew this. You know what your audience is. I knew. Your audience is scared middle-aged and older white men and women. Bigots. So you know they're, you're incentivized if you want to expand your audience and get on more markets to scare them. Uh, that, that crime, Ken, going on on the south side of Chicago 
Hey, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be up in your suburb within a week, man. These black and brown people are going to be robbing shit in your neighborhood in a week. You're incentivized to say that stuff. I engaged Tom in some of that. I didn't engage in tons of that, but I'm guilty of some of that. But the most successful ones, that's what they do. You, I think, alluded to, to, to guns with the violence in Chicago. You're a self-described gun life advocate. I think one of the, the sickest things about this story of fear is the massive surge in gun ownership, gun violence. Uh, not sure when this is going to air, but we just had another campus shooting yesterday. And, I mean, there is a direct line between the stoking of fear and the, uh, the, the massive surge in gun ownership and the elimination of um, training requirements and licensing requirements. As a gun rights activist, how do you square that? Well, I can't deny it, Ken. And... and, and Look, the context for everybody listening to us, I am a Charlton Heston from my cool dead hands kind of a gun advocate. I mean, you talk about some some strong stuff I've said over the years. Probably no more have I said strong stuff than in defense of the Second Amendment gun rights. Uh, but I, I, can't, I can't deny that that is a part of it, that when people are afraid, gun sales go up. Now, I never consciously fed that. Um, it's just always been kind of a philosophy and a right of mine. Um, I, I, so, so, but having said that, Ken, I'm, I'm a big, big gun guy, but, uh, my God, um, the notion that in America right now we can get, you can buy a gun without any permit, without any training. Uh, I'm with an organization, Ken, called 97%.org. Uh, they put out research on what gun owners support. 97% of gun owners support universal background checks. 84% of gun owners support red flag laws. And I can go on and on. Um, so the notion that uh, gun owners generally are with me on a lot of this stuff. Gun owners need to get off their ass, though, Ken, and demand change. And until that happens, we won't have meaningful reform. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing with 97%. I think if our policymakers actually listen to the American public, a lot of common sense gun reforms would make it well, through and, and, legislatures. Well, and Ken, part of the problem is when I was in Congress, you know, we all kind of bowed to the NRA, right? Because uh, the NRA was always there for us, and the NRA would write you a check. Uh, and I did, I did that. I, I could care less about the NRA, but they wrote me my check. I left the NRA five or six years ago because the NRA has no fucking interest in doing anything to stop gun violence. What we And by the way, I'm not alone. Uh, tons of gun owners now want nothing to do with the NRA. It's actually a great opportunity to form a rival lobbying group of gun owners to run the NRA out of business. Yeah, I'm drawn to this tweet of yours responding to uh, the reporting that the NRA has lost more than a million members of late. You said, I say this as a huge gun rights advocate. Good. Um, so, yeah, grateful for, for what you're doing with 97%, but I want to go back to Hi, little one. Your, so good you made it. Your, your Hi, mommy. idea that you're 
Second Amendment advocacy is is a philosophy. It seems to be a philosophy resting on a foundation of of fear. I mean, you call yourself a Charlton Heston gun rights guy from my cold, dead hands. Aren't you giving in to the same kind of fear you helped stoke? Do the facts matter that a gun in the home is 30 times more likely to be used against someone living in that home when you factor in suicide than it is to be used against an, an intruder? I mean, why are you letting that fear, which you reject, uh, at least lately, in, in other aspects of your life, you know, you used to be afraid of Black Lives Matter, now you're woke, but why do you let the gun thing be so dominant? Well, I was never afraid of Black Lives Matter, I just didn't like them, but, but we, can, we can quibble over that. My, my, Ken, my belief in gun rights um, comes from the founding of this country, comes from my reading and interpretation of the Second Amendment. And then I'll, I'll pull back to where we are now. But, uh, like, I, I will defend my right to defend myself with a firearm as vi- I'll go to my desk defending that as vigorously as I'll defend my right to say whatever I want to say about George W. Bush or Barack Obama, as much as I'll defend my right to believe in a God or not believe in a God. To me, it is a basic, natural right freedom that I believe our founders put in there, I believe, Ken, and you and I could probably fight about this for days, uh, to help protect us against a government that would take away our that defense. Um, so I don't arm myself for or support gun rights out of any fear. I agree with you that I think there are a lot of people in America who, when they are afraid, when right-wing media winds them up and they get afraid, they go out and buy a gun. I'll acknowledge that there's way too much of that there. But by the way, Ken, well, by the way, you and I, you and I, you alluded to Michigan State, uh, and I don't know when this is going to air either, the shooting at Michigan State. Here's, you know, you know who pisses me off is, is Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz, three months ago, was asked a really simple question. After another mass shooting, Cruz was asked a question by some European reporter. Excuse me, Senator Cruz, why do you uniquely seem to have this problem of mass shootings in America? And his, American exceptionalism. He, yeah, he, well, he, said, he said, Ken, what a goof. He said something like that, or he was af- afraid to even acknowledge that we do have a unique problem. He wouldn't even acknowledge it. Now, when I'm asked that question... I'll acknowledge, yeah, you know what, compared to the rest of the world, this is a uniquely American problem. It is. So what? What are you going to do about it? We have 400 million plus guns, and that number will go up tomorrow. We have a, and that's that's not going to change. We have a gun culture in this country. That ain't changing. We have a Second Amendment in this country uniquely, and that's not changing. So I'll acknowledge that all of that is a can be a problem that leads to gun violence and makes us unique. But Ken, like, none of those three things are going to change. So I think we need to change how we try to fix the problem, if that makes sense. Yes and no. I think we'll have to pick this one up later because yeah. it could take us hours. But, you know, I'm not going to let you go entirely. It's your it's your devotion to the Second Amendment. And, you know, I'm a Yale Law School guy. This one always gets me. Like, 
the first four words, can you read them back by heart? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but the first four words of the Second Amendment are a well-regulated militia, like for crying out loud. I don't know why at every campaign stop I did at a VFW hall or American Legion post, they skipped over that part. It's just infuriating when you talk about the the writings of, you know, the 1780s applied to a, an environment today where you have AR-15s and, and now eliminating all licensing requirements. That's not a well-regulated militia as envisioned by the founders, and you can't convince me otherwise. Again, you and I could spend a lot of time trying to divine what they meant by a well-regulated militia. We won't do that right now. I, I, but, but Ken, I think I agree with your general thrust in that the 1A, the 2A, none of these rights are absolute. I agree with you. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is, and Ted Cruz and the NRA and these people won't even acknowledge that. I guess my only beef is, don't focus on banning guns, a certain kind of gun, because that ain't happening. Focus on what we can do up front before a gun is bought to make sure that somebody who shouldn't have a gun doesn't get a gun. A lot of gun owners actually support a lot of that stuff. Well, we're going to agree on that, keeping guns out of the hands of people who have no business owning them, red flag laws, background checks. But your biggest point, Ken, in this whole discussion is spot on. That base of the Republican Party, we're talking about scared white people. And I say that as someone who comes from that base, and that's where my friends, supporters, and followers who've all disowned me, that's who they are. I agree. I said we were going to hit all three categories that you outlined up top. I think we're segueing into into that that second one, the broad group of Republicans who, who went along to to go along how are they feeling about the republican primary right now or is it too early are they just checked out are we sleepwalking as a country into into another trump nomination i'm not talking about the elites the the smoke-filled back rooms that are funding these candidates I'm talking about the people you just referred to, your, your friends or maybe the ones who have disowned you, uh, who are motivated by fear. So, so you're not talking about uh, like Republican leaders and elected officials generally can. No, we're, yeah. we're going to get to those. Yeah, yeah, okay. Here's what's interesting. Here's where the base is. And this is fascinating. In every poll right now of potential Republican nominees, there are only two people that even register, Trump and DeSantis, Trump and DeSantis. Nobody else, this is really unusual, nobody else even registers in the polls. Why is that? Because it's Trump's party. Every Republican voter right now that says they want DeSantis, they are a Trump lover. They tell me this, Joe, I love Trump, but he can't win. DeSantis is just like Trump, Joe, but he can win. So that the upshot here, Ken, is these are all Trump people. So something like 90, 95 percent of Republican voters right now want Trump slash Trumpism. And they only view Trump or DeSantis as the vehicles for that period. So this gets to your your and my Trumpism concern. Yeah. I mean, if, if you 
defined your activism immediately after 2016 as opposition to Trump, you've had to pivot a little, right? Because the threat doesn't go away if, if Trump is cut off at the knees. I left the Republican Party almost three years ago, exactly to the day. Wow. Um, I left right after my idiotic primary challenge against Trump. And when I left the Republican Party, I went on CNN and I said, I'm leaving the Republican Party because it's an authoritarian embracing cult. It's much bigger than Trump. Uh, Ken, you're, you're spot on. Um, uh, Trumpism is not fringe. Trumpism is now the animating force in the party. Which is why, Ken, I believe, and I think Liz Cheney and my buddy Adam Kinzinger will eventually realize this. They do now. Um, The party's not going to change. I think it's on this road, Ken. I think it's on this path. Uh, And I don't think it's coming back. I'm older than you, probably. I'm an old man. Not in my lifetime. So I, I felt like it was my duty to oppose, as early as I could, oppose what the party had become, um, people ask me all the time, they've been asking me for a year now, okay, Joe, I get you won't support Trump, but you'll support another Republican in 2024, won't you? And Ken, I drew my red line. And even among never Trumpers, I think I'm in the minority. My red line on Trumpism is this. I will never support any Republican who supported Donald Trump in 2020. Because if you supported him after four years of that unfit bastard in the White House, I can't support you. Now, that's where I've drawn my line, Ken. And again, even most never Trumpers disagree with me. But that means I can't support Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, who I know well, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. And I'd remind you, by the way, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger voted for Trump in 2020. Um, but I feel that strongly about opposing Trumpism. Well, even some of the leading never-Trumpers who did not vote for him in 2020 seem to be cowed today. You have Chris <laughs> Sununu. Uh, you know what? I think you're going to riff on this, so go for it. Larry Hogan, Chris Sununu, all yours. I can. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, my God. This is why this, uh, I'm sorry, my decibel level. Ken, this is what just fucking drives me up a tree. Like, (laughs) I don't hate Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't hate Lauren Boebert. I don't hate. Uh, 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 I'm not disgusted with Jim Jordan or Paul Gozar. I'm disgusted with Paul Ryan. I'm disgusted with Mitt Romney. I'm disgusted with Mike Pompeo, Chris Christie. I'm disgusted with Chris Sinudo and Larry Hogan. Because as you said, Ken, they all know who this guy is, and they don't have the balls to say right now, there's no way I'll support him because he's unfit. Did you see what Paul, like Paul Ryan, where the hell has Paul Ryan been, right? On the board of Fox News, we have the answer. Thank you, Ken. I mean, think about this. Five years ago, Joe Walsh and Paul Ryan both know what Trump is. Crazy Tea Party Joe Walsh stands up in the public square and says, I declare war on Trump and Trumpism. What does Paul Ryan do? He just goes away quietly, joins Fox News, and just keeps his head down for five years, hoping the Trump storm goes away. Then Paul Ryan comes out a few months ago and says, "Uh, uh, we can't. uh, Don't worry. Trump's not going to be the nominee because he can't win. 
Not because he's unfit, because he can't win. But but you're right, Ken. Paul Ryan will support Trump if he's the nominee. So will Chris Christie. And then Sununu and Larry Elgin? He's serious? I'll support Trump if he... I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Why are you so <laughs> upset by their reasoning that he can't win? Oh, I, I got my answer. It's dishonest. A, A, it's dishonest. Because these, <laughs> these guys, I'm watching my language for you, Ken. These guys know in their head and in their heart, he's a traitor. He's unfit. They know that. They don't have the balls to say that because, Ken, they still want to be in the game. They still want to get elected. They still want to play. They want to be in the king's court. Um, when you say what I say, he's an unfit traitor. Ken, when you say that, as I've said publicly now for five years, you're done <laughs> as a Republican. <laughs> they don't want to. They don't want to be there. I get that. What's your theory? Oh, I think it's. I think it's that. I think it's cowardice, and I think it is tribalism. And I worry that we underestimate the power of tribalism and the attraction to to the tribe that has protected you and made you rich for for so long. And it makes me want to ask you if, if you think there is. A way around that. Can we actually pull enough Republicans from the Republican tribe to the Democratic tribe in November of 2024 to win? Do we need a third way? I mean, we've had some smart people on this show, Miles Taylor and Sebastian Younger and others who say, you know what, that that draw of the tribe is almost unavoidable. And, and it's more that you're never going to join the other tribe than that you're going to vote against your your own. And so Miles Taylor says the only way out of this is to create a third party. What's your take? I love Miles, and I know Miles well, and I've told him repeatedly, not now. I, I've been yelling for a third and a fourth party for the last ten years. Not now. Because I believe, Ken, and I could be dead wrong, I believe my former political party is a direct threat to our democracy. So as far as I'm concerned, right now, our battle right now is to defeat that threat. And that means the only game in town is over here, the Democratic Party. Now, you want to change and reform our democracy down the road with uh, a ranked choice voting and a third and fourth party? Have at it. And I'm with you. But no, no, right now, it's all about saving democracy. And this is, we can think about it. We've got two parties. One of our two major political parties is fully authoritarian. I don't have time now to twiddle my thumbs and, and think about a third or fourth party. Me, crazy Tea Party Joe Walsh, I got to do everything I can, as I did in 20, to help Joe Biden win. If Biden's the nominee, I'm going to do everything I can to help him get reelected. And by the way, help other Democrats win. Because I believe that party is a direct threat to our democracy. So my answer, Ken, to Miles is just not now down the road well this has been this has been intense joe i got one more question for you oh shut up what do you have what's what is the mainstream media that's that's such a great question that's a great question it's a fair question 
Um, and I don't know if, if that it's term is even applicable media. anymore, and maybe I still use it too much. Here's what, here's what it is. It's, it's the thing, you're, you're not going to like this, the mainstream media is the thing that gave us Fox News. Because for so long, ABC and CBS and NBC and PBS and MSNBC and all the rest, all good people, but because they were all left of center, the media in this country has always generally been left of center. Over the years, Ken, that just freaking pissed off, again, the Republican Party base. And all of a sudden, there was a market for Fox News and talk radio and all the rest. So when I think mainstream media, I think good, decent, left-of-center media uh, that helped give us Fox News. Well, you've got to acknowledge that today, if we ever were where you say we were, we're not there today, right? More Americans get their news from completely. Facebook and crazy unreferenced sources than get their news from, you know, even cable TV, much less nightly news. It's uh, kind of an antiquated term and an antiquated uh. argument. I concede that you're right. When I go on CNN tonight, uh, I, I may have seven people watching me, whereas like 10 years ago, it was a big deal. Oh, Joe, you're going to be on CNN. You're right. People don't even, young people don't even go to cable news anymore. Fair. Cool. Well, Joe, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I hope we can talk you into coming back hey, on. Hey, by Thanks the way, can I minutes. say something? Yeah. I've done a gazillion of these. You're fucking good. I mean that. <laughs> you, you ask really good, thought-provoking, penetrating, tough, fair questions. Ken, I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Joe. Me too. Stay in touch, brother. The best part of waking up, maggot tears in my cup. Check out the new maggot tears mug available now at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. It's 100% union made right here in the USA. I know I'm not tired of winning yet. How about you? Get yours today. Uh. Right. So thanks for our like 62K listeners. Already starting to get faster and faster. My name's Tristam, and modest touch producer. Oxford Berkeley Type Medical University honors graduate, award-winning scholar, researcher in the humanities, so political science, Berkeley poli-sci major, and French minor. Um, 